Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.3 A Kingdom in Peril. A quick announcement before we begin. If you are listening to this podcast on YouTube instead of regular podcatchers, please hit the subscribe button below the video. Also, please make sure to hit the bell icon to the right and choose all notifications. That way, you'll be automatically notified as new episodes load. The coin on the cover art today is again from our friends at Classical Numismatic Group LLC and you can visit them at www.cngcoins.com. Last episode, we took a look at a young Macedonian prince in Thebes and his exposure to one of the greatest generals in ancient history. Around 364 BC, Philip returned to the court of his brother Perdiccas III. Perdiccas appears to have trusted his younger brother and he gave him some land and also put him in charge of some cavalry and infantry, which basically was some sort of internship for the young prince. We have very little information about the reign of Perdiccas III after he assassinated the regent Ptolemy of Olorus. Ptolemy is the guy who murdered Perdiccas's older brother, Alexander II, and was having an affair with their mother, Eurydice, and took control of the government. Other than a short confrontation with Athens, the bulk of Perdiccas's reign seems to have been spent in recovery from the turbulent period that followed the assassination of his older brother and Macedonia could use some breathing room. By Greek standards, this was a fairly barbarous tribal monarchy where the king, in many respects, was first among equals, and much effort was spent in keeping the semi-autonomous sub-kingdoms on the fringe in line. Macedonians, as previously mentioned, to the horror of the civilized Greeks, drank unwatered wine, which as a result led to some spectacular drunken revels including a couple of notorious ones in the reign of Alexander. One that would lead to a city being burned down, and another that led to the king committing murder. But I digress. The Macedonian army had two components. The strongest was the so-called companion cavalry, which would achieve much renown in the, in the coming decades. Macedonian cavalry was armored, and it had been used in the Peloponnesian War. However, it was undisciplined. You had a bunch of young noblemen trying to seek glory, and this is somewhat similar in mentality to the French knights at the Battle of Agincourt. And then there was the infantry, which was basically a peasant levy, with poorly trained farmers and shepherds. These were lightly armed, and a far cry from the trained hoplites of the Greek city-states. For much of history, states have used peasant levies for manpower and spear fodder. However, badly trained part-time troops are unreliable, and they are often the first to break in the heat of battle. And with an untrained army relying on peasant levies and undisciplined cavalry, Macedonia at this time was simply not punching up to the weight of its manpower. And in addition to having an inferior armed force, Macedonia was hemmed in by powerful enemies. To the northeast was Thrace, which will play a part in our story in the future, when we get to the successors. Rich in gold, the region included what is now the European part of Turkey, northeastern Greece, Bulgaria, and parts of Romania. 
There were many Greek city-states along the Thracian coast, including famously Byzantium. This region had been conquered by the Persians under Darius and for a while was briefly the site of a Persian satrap. However, after the defeat of the Persians, after the invasion of Greece, Thrace started to unify under the leadership of the Odrysian tribe, and about 40 tribes and 22 local kingdoms came together under Odrysian leadership, and this is often referred to as the Odrysian kingdom, which would survive in many forms all the way down to the 1st century BC. Now this was basically a tribal confederacy, and again, as with the Macedonians, the king often struggled to exercise central control. Our old friend Herodotus refers to the Thracians as the second most numerous number of people known to him after the Indians. Now obviously this can be taken with a grain of salt, but what Herodotus appears to suggest is Thracian power was heavily restricted because of their failure to achieve unity. Relations between Macedon and Thrace were always prickly, and like all neighbors in the ancient world, they often went to war, and the Thracians were always happy to sponsor one of the many pretenders to the Macedonian throne. The Thracians were primarily known for their light infantry, called the Peltasts. Unlike the Hoplites, they had wicker shields and many throwing javelins and short swords. Unlike the Hoplites, they did not fight in a shield wall. Obviously, a wicker shield is not going to lend itself to fighting well in a shield wall. And they fought as ranged infantry. So, as an example of differing fighting styles, while the Hoplites would face a cavalry charge with a shield wall, the Thracians, when faced with one from the Persians, opened up their ranks, allowed the horsemen to ride through, and then peppered them with javelins. And so by the 4th century BC, Greek armies were using Thracian peltas often as mercenaries. We mentioned last episode how Theban equipment was adapted for a poorer citizen base. And this is also true for peltas. The nature of the equipment made it easier to arm poor peasants. Thracian peltas would play a major role in the wars to come and even Alexander would employ them. To the northwest of Macedon was the kingdom of Paeonia. Now their ethnic origins are disputed. They were likely of Thraco-Illyrian origin. And like Thrace, Paeonia had been subjugated by the Persians, but it had regained independence in the aftermath of the Greco-Persian War. And in that aftermath, they coalesced into a kingdom. And when the third of Macedonia's enemies went to war, the Paeonians allied with them to invade northern Macedonia. Which brings up the third and most deadly rival to Macedonia, the Illyrians. Now the Greeks applied this term liberally to many of the quote-unquote barbarian tribes to the north of Epirus and Macedonia. There's some debate as to who these people actually were and whether they all shared a common ethnicity. Now in later periods, Illyrians of the North Adriatic coast, north of Epirus, would form a formidable pirate kingdom that eventually only the Romans would put down. But it's not clear that these were ethnically the same people as the ones who gave much grief to Macedonia. Now what we are dealing with here primarily is the Illyrian kingdom of Dardania, which is north of Paeonia and west of Thrace. And we are talking sort of of southern Serbia, what is now the modern Republic of Macedonia, northeastern Albania, etc. The man who may have fused these tribes into a kingdom was Bardylus. He appears to have been born of humble origins, and according to the sources, he lived to be past 90. Now, at the very least, he was very advanced in age. 
A successful war leader, he fused these tribes into a powerful state by equally distributing the spoils. And many of these spoils came at the expense of Macedonia, many of whose kings he tormented. And in particular, he was the nemesis of Amantus III, father of Alexander II, Perdiccas III, and Philip. In 393, he inflicted such a heavy defeat on Amantus that Amantus had to flee the country. And in his place, Bardylus put a puppet king, Argeus II. Now, Amantus recovered his kingdom the next year with Thessalian help, but Illyrian raids into Macedonia continued. And finally, by 372, Bardylus forced the Macedonians to pay him annual tribute. Now, when Bardylus was not tormenting the Macedonians, he was developing the economy of his state. The city of Damascion, now Damascion's actual location today is unknown, probably somewhere in North Macedonia or southern Serbia. The city of Damascion started to issue silver coins around 395 AD. And that is the coin on the cover today. As previously mentioned, this one is from CNG. This is a tetradrum believed to have been issued between 395 and 385 BC, made of silver, diameter of 20.5 millimeters, and a weight of 13.83 grams. So this is a lighter weight standard than the Athenian tetradrum. So now on the obverse, we have the head of Apollo, and Apollo is wearing a laurel wreath. And on the reverse, we have a tripod with the legs terminating in lion's feet. And to the left and the right of the tripod is a legend. D-A-M-A -A in Greek and S-T-I-O-N-O -O on the sides. All of these are inside an inquisitive square. Now, sacrificial tripods are used for religious, were used for religious offerings and they are often associated with Apollo. Coins that have Apollo on the obverse often have these tripods on the reverse. Now, these particular coins were inspired by those issued by the Chalcidian League. And it must be noted here that the legend is not blundered which suggests that there was significant interaction of the Greek world. Now, these coins spread through the Balkans and up towards the Danube, suggesting that Bardylus managed to establish significant trade networks. For some reason, these coins do not mention Bardylus by name, so it's basically a civic issue used for trade, with the name of the city, Damastion, on it. Bardylus continued to meddle in Macedonia after his old punching bag, Amantus III, died. He defeated the young Alexander II and the tribute to Dardania continued. By 359 BC, Perdiccas III had enough, and he was tired of paying tribute to the Dardanian boogeyman. Raising his army levies, he marched north, and it's very likely that Philip accompanied him as well. And unlike his brother, Philip would escape the ensuing disaster. Perdiccas was killed, along with 4,000 of his men. It has been estimated that Macedonia's military strength at the time was about 10,000 men. Now, there's some speculation that that number is correct, but if that is true, we are talking about the bulk of Macedonia's military strength being wiped out. Ancient sources say that the remainder of the Macedonian army was terrified of the Illyrians and they wanted nothing more to do with the war. And this really got the ball rolling. The Dardanians expanded their control into Upper Macedonia, the Paeonians under the king Aegis increased their raids into Macedonia. And just to prove misery loves company, the Thracians and the Athenians joined the fun with each sponsoring a pretender to the throne. And Macedonia was on the verge of collapse. The new king of Macedon was Perdiccas's six-year-old son, Amantus IV. 
Philip was appointed regent and tutor to the new king. Now Philip knew he could not defeat all his enemies in the field. So instead, he used diplomacy to pick them off one by one. The Paeonians were bribed to leave. Bardalis was bought off with a matrimonial alliance between Philip and Odata, a relative of Bardalis. Now we don't know exactly how Odata and Bardalis were related. She has been described as the daughter or the great-granddaughter or the niece of the Dardanian king. And remember, ancient sources are saying that Bardalis by this point is close to 90. Now whatever the relation, the marriage and the peace treaty on Bardalis's terms bought Philip some breathing room. Odata was renamed Eurydice after Philip's mother, and she would be the first of Philip's many wives. And again, with more diplomacy, Philip took care of the Thracians, and he actually got them to kill their pretender. And then came the Athenians. So Philip, over here, he tricked them into holding their army back, promising them territorial concessions of a major port. And while the Athenians held back, he tracked down, ambushed, and killed their pretender, Argeus. Now, it is very possible that this Argeus is the same as the former Argeus II, who had briefly held the Macedonian throne as a puppet of Bardylus about 30 years ago. And with that, Philip pulled Macedon from the brink. Just as it looked that the Macedonian state would collapse, it would survive. And as his reward, Philip got the Macedonian assembly to proclaim him king, deposing his nephew. Now, Philip did not kill his young nephew, which is an unusual occurrence in Macedonian and ancient royal history. He saw no threat in him, and so Amyntas IV was allowed to live. And eventually, Amyntas IV would be married to Philip's daughter, Kinane, the daughter of Philip and Odata. Kinane and her child with Amyntas will play a big role in our story following the death of Alexander. Unfortunately, Amyntas IV will not. As a former king, he was a logical successor to Philip. But there doesn't appear to have been any mention of him in that role in the long reign of Philip. We do not hear much about him in the campaigns of Philip, and he appears to have spent a ceremonial role in Philip's court. We know nothing about his personality or his abilities. He is basically a giant void. Other than the fact that he fathered a daughter, we know basically nothing about him. But he was an adult male of royal blood, and of course he was a former king, and therefore a likely pretender, and this fact would seal his doom after Philip's death. Now while Philip spared his nephew, he gave no such consideration for his three half-brothers from the second marriage of Amyntas III. The execution orders went out, though it took about 20 years to finish two out of the three. With that, Macedonia, out of peril, now had a new and talented energetic king. Now the results of the new regime would be evident much sooner than anybody expected. Bardalis, in particular, probably ruled the day he did not destroy Macedonia when he could have. We will get to that story next time in episode 3.4, The Rise of Macedonia. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. Good reviews are essential in getting the word out and building up this podcast. Thank you again for your support.